Chapter Thirty Two of The Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Thirty Two The Prisoner. Harry King did not at once consult an attorney, for Milton Hibbard, the only one he knew or cared to call upon for his defense, was an old friend of the elders and had been retained by him to assist the district attorney at the trial. The other two lawyers in Louvet, one of whom was the district attorney himself, were strangers to him. Twice he sent messages to the elder after his return, begging him to come to him never dreaming that they could be unheeded. But to the second only was any reply sent, and then it was but a cursory line. Legal steps will be taken to secure justice for you, whoever you are. To his friends he sent no messages. Their sympathy could only mean sorrow for them if they believed in him, and hurt to his own soul if they distrusted him and he suffered enough. So he lay there in the clean, bare cell, and was glad that it was clean and held no traces of former occupants. The walls smelled of lime in their freshly plastered surfaces, and the floor had the pleasant odor of new pine. His life passed in review before him from boyhood up. It had been a happy life, until the tragedy brought into it by his own anger and violence. But since that time, it had been one long nightmare of remorse, heightened by fear, until he had met Amalia. And after that, it had been one unremitting strife between love and duty, delight in her mind and her touch, in her every movement, and in his own soul, despair unfathomable. Now at last, it was to end in public exposure, imprisonment, disgrace. A peculiar apathy of peace seemed to envelope him. There was no longer hope to entice, no further struggle to be waged against the terror of fear or the joy of love, or the horror of remorse, all seemed gone from him, even to the vague interest in things transpiring in the world. He had only a puzzled feeling concerning his arrest. Things had not proceeded as he had planned. If the elder would but come to him, all would be right. He tried to analyze his feelings and the thought that possessed him most was wonder at the strange vacuity of the condition of emotionlessness. Was it that he had so suffered that he was no longer capable of feeling? What was feeling? What was emotion? And life without either emotion or feeling or caring to feel, what would it be? Valueless, empty space. Nothing left but bodily hunger, bodily thirst, bodily weariness. 
a lifetime for his years were not yet half spent, a lifetime at Wapham, and work for the body, but vacuity for the mind, maybe, sometimes memories. Even thinking thus, he seemed to have lost the power to feel sadness. Confusion reigned within him, and yet he found himself powerless to correlate his thoughts or suggest reasons for the strange happenings of the last few days. It seemed to him that he was in a dream, wherein reason played no part. In the indictment, he was arraigned for the murder of Peter Craigmile, Jr., as Richard Kildean. And yet he had seen his cousin lying dead before him. During all the years that had passed, since he had fled from that sight, in battle he had seen men clubbed with the butt-end of a musket, fall dead with wounded temples, even as he had seen his cousin, stark, inert, lifeless. He had felt the strange, insane rage to kill that he had seen in others and marveled at. And now, after he had felt and done it, he was arrested as the man he had slain. All the morning he paced his cell and tried to force his thoughts to work out the solution. But none presented itself. Was he the victim of some strange form of insanity that caused him to lose his identity and believe himself another man? Drunken men he had seen under the delusion that all the rest of the world were drunken and they alone sober. Oh, madness! madness. At least he was sane, and knew himself, and this was a confusion brought about by those who had undertaken his arrest. He would wait for the elder to come, and in the meantime live in his memories, thinking of Amalia, and so awaken in himself one living emotion, sacred and truly sane. In the sweetness of such thinking alone, he seemed to live. He drew the little ivory crucifix from his bosom and looked at it. The Christ who bore our sins and griefs. And again, Amalia's words came to him. If they keep you forever in prison, still forever are you free. In snatches her words repeated themselves over in his mind as he gazed. If you have the Christ in your heart, so are you high, lifted above the sin. If I see you no more here, in paradise yet will I see you, and there it will be joy, great joy, for it is the love that is all of life and all of eternity and lives lives. Bertrand Ballard and his wife and daughter stood in the small room opening off from the corridor that led to the rear of the courthouse, where was the jail, waiting for the jailer to bring his keys from his office, and, waiting thus, Betty turned her eyes beseechingly on her father, and for the first time since her talk with her mother in the studio, 
opened her lips to speak to him. She was very pale, but she did not tremble, and her voice had the quality of determination. Bertrand had yielded the point and had taken her to the jail against his own judgment, taking Mary with him to forestall the chance of Betty's seeing the young man alone. Surely, he thought, she will not ask to have her mother excluded from the interview. I don't want anyone, not even you or, or mother, to go in with me. My child, be wise and be guided. Yes, father, but I want to go in alone. She slipped her hand in her mother's, but still looked in her father's eyes. I must go in alone, father. You don't understand, but mother does. This young man may be an impostor. It is almost unmaidenly for you to wish to go in there alone. Mary, but Mary hesitated and trusted to her daughter's intuition. Betty, explain yourself, was all she said. Suppose it was father, or you thought it might be father, and a terrible thing were hanging over him, and you had not seen him for all this time, and he were in there, and I were you. Wouldn't you ask to see him first alone? Would you stop for one moment to think about being proper? What do I care? If he is an impostor, I shall know it. In one moment I shall know it. I, I just want to see him alone. It is because he has suffered so long. That is why he has come like this. If they aren't accusing him wrongfully, and I, he will tell me the truth. If he is Richard, I will know it. If I came in and stood beside him blindfolded, I will call you in a moment, stand by the door, and let me see him alone. The jailer returned, alert and important, shaking his keys in his hand. This way, please. In the moment's pause of unlocking, Betty again turned upon her father, her eyes glowing in the dim light of the corridor with wide, sorrowful gaze, large and irresistibly earnest. Bertrand glanced from her to his wife, who slightly nodded her head. Then he said to the surprised jailer, We will wait here. My daughter may be able to recognize him. Call us quickly, dear, if you have reason to change your mind. The heavy door was closed behind her, and the key turned in the lock. Harry King loomed large and tall in the small room, standing with his back to the door and his face lifted to the small window, where he could see a patch of the blue sky and white, scudding clouds. For the moment, his spirit was not in that cell. It was free and on top of a mountain, looking into the clear eyes of a woman who loved him. He was so rapt in his vision that he did not hear the grating of the key in the lock, and Betty stood abashed, with her back to the door, 
feeling that she was gazing on a stranger. Relieved against the square of light, his hair looked darker than she remembered Peter's ever having been, as dark as Richard's, but that rough, neglected beard also dark, and the tanned skin did not bring either young man to her mind. The pause was but for a moment, when he became aware that he was not alone, and turned and saw her there. Betty, oh, Betty, you have come to help me. He walked toward her slowly, hardly believing his eyes, and held out both hands. If I can, who are you? She took his hands in hers and walked around him, turning his face to the light. Her breath came and went quickly, and a round spot now burned on one of her cheeks, and her face seemed to be only two great pathetic eyes. Do I need to tell you, Betty? Once we thought we loved each other. Did we, Betty? I don't, don't know, Peter. Oh, Peter, you're alive. Peter, Richard didn't kill you. She did not cry out, but spoke the words with a low intensity that thrilled him. And then she threw her arms about his neck and burst into tears. He didn't do it. You are alive. Peter, he didn't kill you. I knew he didn't do it. They all thought he did, and, and your father, he has almost broken his bank, just, just hunting for Richard to, to have him hung, and, oh, Peter, I have lived in horror for fear he w would, would, and he never could, Betty. I have come home to atone. I have come home to give myself up. I killed Richard, my cousin, my best friend. I struck him in hate and saw him lying dead. All the time they were hunting him. It was I they should have hunted. I can't understand it. Did they take his dead body for mine? Or how was it that they did not know he was struck down and murdered? They must have taken his body for mine, or he must have fallen over. But he didn't, for I saw him lying dead as I struck him. All these years, the eye of vengeance has been upon me, and my crime has haunted me. I have seen him lying so dead. God, God. Betty still clung to him and sobbed incoherently. No, no, Peter, it was you who were drowned. They found all your things and saw where you had been pushed over, and... But you weren't drowned. They only thought it. They believed it. He put his hand to his head, as if to brush away the confusion which staggered him. Yes. Richard lay dead, and they found him. But why did they hunt for him? 
and I, I, living, why didn't they hunt me, and he dead and lying there, why did they hunt him? But my father would believe the worst of him rather than to see himself disgraced in his son. Don't cry, little Betty, don't cry. You've had too much to bear. Sit here beside me and I'll tell you about it. That's why I came back. But if you weren't drowned, why, why didn't you come home and say so? Didn't you ever see the papers and how they were hunting Richard all over the world? I knew you were dead because I knew you would never be so cruel as to leave everyone in doubt and your father in sorrow just because he had quarreled with you. It might have killed your mother if the elder had let her know. I can't tell you all my reasons, Betty. Mostly they were cowards' reasons. I did my best to leave evidence that I had been pushed over the bluff because it seemed the only way to hide myself. I did my best to make them think me dead and never thought anyone could be harmed by it because I knew him to be dead. So I just thought we would both be dead so far as the world would know. And as for you, dear... I learned on that fatal night that you did not love me. That was another coward's reason why I wished to be dead to you all. He began pacing the room. And Betty sat on the edge of the narrow jail bedstand and watched him with tearful eyes. It was true, Betty? You did not really love me? Peter... Didn't you ever see the papers? Didn't you ever know all about the search for you and how he disappeared too? Oh, Peter, and it was supposed he killed you and pushed you over the bluff and then ran away. Oh, Peter, but it was kept out of the home paper by the elder so your mother should not know. And, Peter, didn't you know Richard lived? lived lived he lifted his clasped hands above his head and they trembled lived betty say it again yes peter i saw him and i know oh god make me know it make me understand he fell on his knees beside her and hid his face in the scant jail bedding, and his frame shook with dry sobs. I was a coward. I told you that. I, I thought myself a murderer, and all this time my terrible thought has driven me. Lived? I never killed him? God, Betty, say it again. Betty sat still for a moment shaken at first with a feeling of resentment that he had made them all suffer so and richard most of all then she was overwhelmed with pity for him and with a glad tenderness it was all over the sorrow had been real but it had all been needless 
She placed her hand on his head, then knelt beside him and put her arm around his neck and drew his head to her bosom, mother-wise, for the deep mother-heart in her was awakened, and thus she told him all the story, and how Richard had come to her broken and repentant, and what had been said between them. When they rose from their knees, it was as if they had been praying, and at the same time giving thanks. And you thought they would find him lying there, dead, and know you had killed him and hunt you down for a murderer? Yes. Poor Peter. So you pushed that great stone out of the edge of the bluff into the river to make them think you'd fallen over and drowned, and threw your things down, too, to make it seem as if you both were dead. Yes. Oh, Peter, what a terrible mistake! How you must have suffered! Yes, as cowards suffer. They stood for a moment, with clasped hands, looking into each other's eyes. Then it was true what Richard told me. You did not love me, Betty? He had grown calmer, and he spoke very tenderly. We must all have the truth now, and conceal nothing. Not quite true. I... I thought I did. You were so handsome. I was only a child then, and I thought I loved you. Or that I ought to, for any girl would. I was so romantic in those days, and you had been wounded, and it was like a romance. And then? And then... And then Richard came, and I knew in one instant I had done wrong, and that I loved him. And, oh, I felt myself so wicked. No, Betty, dear, it was all. It was not fair to you. I would have been true to you, Peter. You would have never known. But after Richard came and told me that he had killed you, I felt as if I had killed you, too. I did like you, Peter. I did. I will do whatever is right. Then it was not in vain that we have all suffered. We have been saved from doing each other wrong. Everything will come right now. All that is needed is for Father to hear what you have told me, and he will come and take me out of here. Where is Richard? No one knows. Not even you, Betty? No. He's dropped out of the world as completely as you did. Well, it will be all right anyway. Father will withdraw his charge, and... Did you say his bank was going to pieces? He must have help. I can help him. You can help him, Betty. How? Then Peter told Betty how he had found Richard's father in his mountain retreat, and that she must write to him. If there is any danger of the bank's going, write for me to Larry Kildean. 
Father never would appeal to him if he lost everything in the world, so we must do it. As soon as I am out of here, we can save him. Already he felt himself a new man and spoke hopefully and cheerfully. He little knew the struggle still before him. Peter, father and mother are out there in the corridor waiting. I was to call them. I made them let me come in alone. Oh, call them, call them. I don't think they will know you as I did, with that great beard on your face. We'll see. When Bertrand and Mary entered, they stood for a moment aghast, seeing little likeness to either of the young men in the developed and bronzed specimen of manhood before them. But they greeted him warmly, eager to find him Peter, and in their manner he missed nothing of their old-time kindliness. You are greatly changed, Peter, Jr. You look more like Richard Kildean than you ever did before in your life, said Mary. Yes, but when we see Richard, we may find that a change has taken place in him also, and they will stand in their own shoes hereafter. Since the burden has been lifted from my soul, and I know that he lives, I could sing and shout aloud here in this cell. Imprisonment, even death, means nothing to me now. All will come right before we know it. That is just the way Richard would act and speak. No wonder you have been taken for him, said Bertrand. Yes, he was always more buoyant than I. Maybe we have both changed, but I hope he has not. I loved my friend. As they walked home together, Mary Ballard said, Now Peter ought to be released right away. Certainly he will be as soon as the elder realizes the truth. How he has changed, though. His face shows the mark of sorrow, those drooping, sensitive lines about his mouth. They were never there before. And they are the lines of suffering. They touched my heart. I wish Hester were at home. She ought to be written to. I'll do it as soon as I get home. Peter is handsomer than he was, in spite of the lines. And, as you say, he does look more like his cousin than he used to because of them, I think. Richard always had a debonair way with him. But he had that little sensitive droop to the lips. Not so marked as Peter's is now. But you remember, Mary, like his mother's. Oh, mother, don't you think Richard could be found? Betty's voice trailed sorrowfully over the words. She was thinking how he had suffered all this time, and wishing her heart could reach out to him and call him back to her. He must be, dear, if he lives. Oh, yes, he'll be found. It can be published that Peter Jr. has returned and that will bring him after a while. Peter's physique seems to have changed as well as his face. Did you notice that backward swing of the shoulders, so like his cousin's, when he said, I could sing and shout here in this cell? And the way he lifted his head and smiled? That beard is a horrible disguise. I must send a barber to him. 
He must be himself again. Oh, yes, do. He stands so straight and steps so easily. His lameness seems to have quite gone, said Mary, joyously. But at that, Bertrand paused in his walk and looked at her, then glancing at Betty walking slowly on before. He laid his fingers to his lips and took his wife's arm, and they said no more until they reached home and Betty was in her room. I simply can't think it, Bertrand. I see Peter in him. It is Peter. Of course he's like Richard. They were always alike, and that makes him all the more Peter. No other man would have that likeness, and it goes to show that he is Peter. My dear, unless the elders see him as we see him, the thing will have to be tried out in the courts. Unless we can find Richard, Hester ought to be here. She could set them right in a moment. Trust a mother to know her own boy. I'll write her immediately. I'll... But you have no authority, Mary. No authority? She's my friend. I have a right to do my duty by her, and can so put it that it will not be such a shock to her as it inevitably will be if matters go wrong or Peter should be kept in prison for lack of evidence, or for too much evidence. She'll have to know sooner or later. Bertrand said no more against this. For was not Mary often quite right? I'll see to it that he has a barber and try to persuade the elder to see him. That may settle it without any trouble. If not, I must see that he has a good lawyer to help in his defense. If that savage old man remains stubborn, Hester must be here. If the thing goes to trial, Betty will have to appear against him. Well, it mustn't go to trial, that's all. That night, two letters went out from Louvet, one to Hester Craigmile at Aberdeen, Scotland, and one to the other end of the earth, where Larry Kildeen waited for news of Harry King. There on the mountain top. On the first of each month, Larry rode down to the nearest point where letters could be sent, making a three days trip on horseback. His first trip brought nothing, because Harry had not sent his first letter in time to reach the station before Larry was well on his way back up the mountain. He would not delay his return, for fear of leaving the two women too long alone. After Harry's departure, Madame Manovska had grown restless, and once had wandered so far away as to cause them great alarm and a long search. When she was found, sitting close to the fall, apparently too weak and too dazed to move. This had so awakened Amalia's fears that she never allowed her mother to leave the cabin alone, but always, on one pretext or another, accompanied her. The situation was a difficult one for them all. If Amalia took her mother away to some town, as she wished to do, 
she feared for Madame Manovska's sanity when she could not find her husband. And still, when she tried to tell her mother of her father's death, she could not convince her of its truth. For a while she would seem to understand and believe it. But after a night's rest, she would go back to the old weary repetition of going to her husband and his need of her. Then it was all to go over again, day after day, until at last Amalia gave up and allowed her mother the comfort of her belief. But all the more she had to invent pretexts for keeping her on the mountain. So she accepted Larry's kindly advice and his earnestly offered hospitality and his comforting companionship and remained as, perforce, there was nothing else for her to do. End of chapter 32 Recording by Sandra Estenson